engaging in a kind of multiple biopsychosocial approach to all of these problems is probably the the way forward and I, I don't think there's going to be a magic bullet uh, for any of these things um, but thinking holistically about the brain and the body together is really important yeah. So welcome to this episode of Finding Your Range podcast with me, Jeannie Debon, a movement therapist who specializes in hypermobility, EDS and chronic pain. And today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Dr. Jessica Eccles, um, who many of you may already know. And if you don't know, you're going to really enjoy this podcast as we're going to find out all about um, her research and what she's been working on. So let me read her bio to you. So Jessica Eccles is a clinical academic psychiatrist at Brighton and Sussex Medical School. Her main areas of expertise are brain-body interactions, joint hypermobility and liaison psychiatry. Dr Eccles completed her PhD in the relationship between joint hypermobility, autonomic dysfunction and psychiatric symptoms and is now a clinical senior lecturer. She is particularly interested in dysautonomia, pain, fatigue, headaches, brain fog, and sensitivities to sound, smell, and light. So thank you very much, Dr. Eccles, and welcome, and thank you for joining us. Oh, no, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure, Jeannie, to be here. Oh, thank you. As I, um, I think I mentioned to you, we have um, a whole audience who are, who are so excited, um, and they've sent in lots of questions for you. So um Hopefully we won't keep you too long <laughs> with our questions. Um, but could you just tell us how your particular interest in hypermobility started? Well, it's actually, it's quite a funny story, really. Um, so many years ago, I think probably about 2005, I was at clinical school. Uh, so that's um, medical school where you start uh, learning about patients and going to clinics and things. And I was uh, on my orthopedics rotation. And uh, one of the doctors in a clinic that I was attending said to me, do you realize you have hypermobile knees? Uh, why don't you come and see me after ward round? And so it turned out um, that uh, I hadn't learned much about hypermobility. And to be honest, I don't think there was a huge amount in the curriculum. Mm. Um, uh, but it turned out that I was hypermobile, uh, which, um, which kind of made, made uh, a lot of sense. But I didn't really think uh, too much uh, more of it until I came uh, to start my, I was very privileged uh, to be able to do combined clinical and research training really throughout my medical career. So since I've left medical school, I've always mm. been doing research and clinical work at the same time. Right. And I, when I came to start specializing in psychiatry, I came to Brighton and Sussex Medical School. And um, my boss, uh, Professor Hugo Critchley, um, he said, well, I've got this project I'd like you to, to, to get involved with. Um, it's about something called hypermobility. Have you heard of it? And I was like, ah, yes. In fact, I am hypermobile. So I, I think um, that when I was doing the background reading, uh, which was very different back then in, in 2009 to the, to the reading that you might do now, mm. um, uh, I suppose I took a little bit of an extra, extra interest uh, in it. And yes. in fact, um, I think um, pretty much most of my family members are, are all hypermobile too. 
Oh, okay. Well, perfect. So you have a real personal um, interest in, in the work that you do. And I think that always makes it a little bit more, you know, passionate doesn't it when you've got that personal interest oh yes no exactly and one of the things sorry this is possibly um rambling but one of the really uh, interesting things was this um uh, doctor who um who told me I was hypermobile when I was at medical school uh at the time I I was suffering very badly with um pain I had early onset arthritis from a mm. condition called developmental dysplasia which is associated with hypermobility and he he sent me on a um a uh, functional restoration program, uh, a pain rehab program, uh, mm. and I I learned so much from much more. This was when I was a medical student. From being on the other side, um, in terms of stretching, pacing, reframing uh, chronic pain, I, I had no idea that this would end up being so useful to me. Uh, not not just personally, but uh, in terms of grounding a lot of my future practice yeah. oh amazing oh that's yeah that's a great story and um so you're you've done research lots of research um but one of the ones you've done which is really interesting is the brain scans that you did on hypermobile people mm. um, could you tell us about that research and how it it's, it's to do with anxiety, isn't it, that you discovered? Well, yes. So this was actually the first piece of research uh, that I was involved with when I came to work in the psychiatry department at Brighton and Sussex Medical School. Uh, so um, Professor Hugo Critchley, who supervised me for this project, um, he was... Um, he was very interested in, in hypermobility because he had been um, working at Queen Square in London and had been collaborating with Professor Christopher Mathias mm. um, and was interested in um, autonomic disorders, so things like postural tachycardia syndrome. And he, the Brighton and Sussex Medical School is a fairly new medical school. And when I arrived, the Brain Imaging Centre had only been around for a couple of years, I think maybe 18 months, two years possibly. And so what, um, what Hugo said to me was, what I want you to do is um, look at all of the healthy people who have been through the brain scanner, mm. work out whether they're hypermobile or not, uh, because um, Hugo had been uh, taking those measurements, and then uh, do a analysis to see if there are any differences in the structure of the brains of the hypermobile people compared to the non-hypermobile people. So yes. we were actually, we were really lucky. We had a good number of um, healthy controls. We had, I think it was 72. And what we do is we, we put the brains into a statistical program uh, that makes all the brains the same size. Um, and then we look for differences between the hypermobile group and the non-hypermobile group. Mm -hmm. And in terms of brain structure, this is not uh, brain activity. This is purely yes. structure. Yes. And the really striking result was the difference in structure on both sides of the brain in terms of something called the amygdala, which is um, a part of the brain. Some people talk about the limbic uh, system. It's, it's, um, it's a part of the brain that's very much involved in emotional processing, fear responses, anxiety, and also is linked uh, to um, autonomic control as well. So that was, that was, that was really exciting um, for, for mm. a junior researcher for their first brain imaging project to have such a lovely result. Wow. But it was also really exciting for the science um, because no one um, had that. 
people had known, I think really from at least the early 90s, uh, about the relationship between hypermobility and anxiety. But in terms of potential mechanisms, what was actually, you know, brain substrates or um, kind of, of, of what, what, was, what was explaining the link between anxiety and um, mm. predominantly panic was, yes. was not really well known. Um, so that, that was, so I think you, you can't really deduce anything from this. And these were healthy people. They weren't diagnosed with anxiety disorder. So they did oh. have slightly higher anxiety scores, the hypermobile group, than the non-hypermobile group. Um, so we, we, we found this striking difference in an area of the brain that is definitely involved in emotion. Yes. Um, and, but we also found some other um, uh, differences that, um uh also are very interesting so we found so we looked at the group difference so between the people who uh, were hypermobile and the people who weren't we also um correlated the size of bits of the brain with the biton score mm-hmm. and we found that the greater the biton score the smaller a part of the parietal cortex which is involved in representing where we are in space this will be yes. interesting to you being a movement um, person. Yes. So a proprioception sort yes. of center was actually smaller. The the more hypermobile or the, the higher wow. the hypermobility score uh, was. So that, that was really interesting because of at that time there was a bit of research um, about especially in children about hypermobility and what we call developmental coordination disorder mm-hmm. or, or dyspraxia. Yes. And it, it was, it was becoming clear from the literature that there was an association between hypermobility yeah. and dyspraxia. So that was, that was, that was fascinating. Um, and then thirdly, there were some other uh, differences, I think in temporal lobe Um uh, that had also been seen before in previous structural imaging studies in um, basically what we now think of as neurodiversity. So in yes. autism and ADHD. So there were all these tantalizing um, things all in in one study, a part of the brain involved in emotion, um, something to do with um, sense of where you are in space and proprioception and something to do with neurodiversity. Wow. And yes, I have two questions. Um, so, and it might it might seem like a silly question, but these changes in the brain, mm. like in the amygdala, is that something we're born with, or is that something that changes through wow. plasticity, or or do we not know? Well, but it's it's a really interesting question. Um, we know. Uh, that the brain is much more plastic than we ever thought or or certainly even than perhaps how I was taught at medical school when I was there you know 2000 to 2006 the brain areas of the brain uh, can change in size um, and uh, their functional activity can change and their structure um, can change in fact what we know for example was um, the Mm. taxi drivers who uh, spent all that time learning all of the um, the uh, maps of London, after they've done the knowledge, the part of the brain that's involved very close to the amygdala, next to the amygdala, uh, the bit that's involved in memory, the hippocampus got bigger. Uh, So we we know that the brain can change. We also know that uh, the brain changes with uh, various drug treatments non-drug treatments mm-hmm. um so 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 the brain the brain can change now the question with that finding 
is, I mean, is, is actually quite difficult. So the only way we would know this was if we took brain scans of babies mm. and then we followed them up regularly throughout yes. their life, see at which point they develop anxiety or, or other uh, conditions yes. and see how that's related to hypermobility and, um, and the brain. So yes. unfortunately, my study can't tell us that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but um, uh, the interesting thing is um, we do have subsequently after that study, I did a, another imaging study in uh, people who were actually diagnosed with anxiety. So some of them had anxiety and some of them didn't. That was how we picked them on the basis of whether they had anxiety or not. And yes. then in each group, the anxiety or not, we um, we sampled them to see if they were hypermobile or not. So we had four groups, anxious, hypermobile, anxious, non-hypermobile, non-hypermobile, anxious, and non-hypermobile, non-anxious. So yes. what we found there was not only did the structural differences in the amygdala, they, 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 they were true and they were... They were um, so they were replicated, um, but there were also differences in brain activity in the amygdala as well. So that 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 gives us a sense that we're on to something. Mm. But again, cause and effect, it's yes. very, uh, very hard to tell, I'm afraid. And it would be fantastic yes. to have uh, these um, what we call longitudinal studies where yes. you follow um, people uh, throughout a long period of time. Um, but obviously, they're very expensive. They do exist. Um, there yeah. are some, um, yeah. but I, I, I don't know whether the people who have been doing those studies have measured hypermobility. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And there's been lots of research into um, lack of proprioception in hypermobility, but no, all the research studies I've read, nobody could explain why there was lack of proprioception. So do you think it's to do with the changes in the, or the structure of the brain that could be the reason for that, our lack of proprioception? I, I think I, I, um, I expect it's very complicated and mm. I expect it's a combination of um, body things. So to do with our connective tissue uh, differences and, um, and then how they are represented um, in the brain. Uh, and I also think um, there, as, as I said, there's, and this probably speaks to things we might talk about later, but the, the link between hypermobility and dyspraxia, yes. um, dyspraxia, dyslexia, dyscalculia are very um, common neurodiversities, um, but they often actually, uh, in clinical practice, they're associated with other um neurological differences so autism mm -hmm. adhd yes. so um it may be that all of these things are interlinked yeah. uh but understanding more about um the relationship between proprioception uh hypermobility and also uh, a variety of of emotional symptoms would be really interesting because mm -hmm. Perhaps, um, and this is this is just conjecture, but it's something that I'm sure you 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 would have been thinking about. That maybe movement-based treatments may help with things beyond the musculoskeletal system. Mm. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, it, and yeah, that's why your work really fascinated me because um, 
the basis of, of the movement therapy I do, I've, um, I've obviously not done any research into this, but I could tell, and I think you talk about it, that we live in a more of a fight or flight. We have a greater fight or flight response. So when the people come to see me, my clients come to see me, I could feel and I could sense that that was the case, that I could feel it in their tissue. I could see how they moved. I could see it in their breath. So I kind of had this gut feeling that we were very much living in that sympathetic side of our nervous system. And so the work that I do is very much about, first, we have to work on the brain. So we have to do the relaxation and the breath work, and we have to calm the nervous system before we even start doing movement. So a big part of what I do is that side, and then we do the exercise. And it seems to really work by calming everything down first. Um, mm. Because if someone comes to you and they're, they've got holding patterns and tension, and you try and get them to do exercise, but they're fearful and they're, it's never really gonna work out too well um, because they're still in their protective mode. So hearing your research that that's actually a real thing that you know, there is you know, changes in the brain that causes this, it really, it presents itself. Um, and I, I think it's really interesting and we might touch upon this uh, later, but... Um... Uh, one of the um, the things in hypermobility that we're exploring and is is the basis of um, the therapy that I'm I'm currently developing mm. is about the the difference between what your brain expects and what's actually happening, and yes. you can um, you can translate that sort of um, glitch uh, very much in terms of proprioception. So yes. um, if you if you're if you have joints that tend to have a different range of movement to other people but you are not very good your your body and brain aren't very good at knowing where you are in space but you're more likely to be in an odd place in space you can see how the how uh, there is this sort of mismatch in the brain that could lead yes. to um lead to um all sorts of symptoms uh, could yes. be expressed as symptoms essentially yes. yeah that's no, fascinating um so I think we've already touched on this, but why does having a connected tissue lead to the possibility of increased anxiety and living in this heightened fight or flight response? But I think we've kind of covered. Um, I think we have. I mean, I think the, the thing that we haven't really talked about, we've talked about the brain stuff, but we haven't mm. talked so much about the body stuff. Okay. Um, and um, I think, and th this could be too simplistic, and obviously it doesn't apply uh, uh, to everyone, is that if you have um, differences in your connective tissue, you will have differences in your vasculature. Um, mm -hmm. And that means that when you do something, uh, like going from lying to standing, um, you may be predisposed with lax connective tissue um, for blood to pool in your feet for example yeah. and because you haven't got um, your because your connective tissue is laxer um, you could assume that it's harder for it to get back to the heart and now the body is a is a very well is supposed to be a very good self-regulating machine and um, the process of homeostasis um, alerts the body to um, any any differences and tries to make subtle positive and negative feedback corrections to to keep things on an even keel so we know from the laws of homeostasis that if the return of blood to the heart is not as it should be 
in order to keep um, there being enough blood going around the body, then various things need to change. And it's just is an equation and it's actually called yes. Starling's law. And so in that circumstance, to maintain cardiac output in the face of decreased peripheral return, you actually have to increase your heart rate. Mm-hmm. And so you can imagine by increasing your heart rate, well, you, 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 you basically put yourself into a context um, uh, where of flight and fright. Mm. And so I, I'm, I'm not saying that postural tachycardia is the same as anxiety or anxiety is the same as postural tachycardia, mm. but they are both um, abnormal autonomic responses yes. that push you into flight and fright. And yes. the symptoms are, are, are very similar. So I think if you say in hypermobile people, there is this sort of dual predispos- predisposition, um, the actual architecture of the body predisposes you to um, cardiovascular responses mm-hmm. uh, that lead to symptoms and these um, and brain um, structure and function is 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 different mm-hmm. you can you can see how how this could lead very much to the physical sensations yes. of anxiety so to yes. uh, palpitations mm-hmm. lightheadedness tingling yes yeah wow amazing goodness and and so we touched on it slightly but this um treatment that you're working on to deal with with the um anxiety and what does that involve well, so um, during the course of my PhD, I, as I said, we, we had these different groups of, of people, hypermobile anxious people and non-hypermobile non-anxious yeah. people. And what we found is we didn't, and these, these were people who were recruited really on the basis of anxiety rather than on or not anxiety rather than we weren't we weren't going to um, hypermobility clinics or mm. POTS clinics or anything like that. Um, so what we found was there was a sort of spectrum in terms of how reactive people's heart rates were on standing and um, everyone who took part in the study did an active stand which is where you go it's 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 a way of looking for orthostatic intolerance uh, without having a tilt table so you just lie down for a while then you stand up and we measure your heart rate uh whilst you're going from lying to standing and for a few minutes after and we we found that the anxious the people who had anxiety they um they had higher heart rate raises um than the people who didn't have anxiety but when we took into account the hypermobility that the hypermobility had the people who were hypermobile and anxious had the greatest um yes. heart rate rises yes. and the, the difference was statistically significant in terms of um of uh the the effect of hypermobility on this relationship and so that, that was that was really interesting and we found the same thing for for symptoms of um dizziness and lightheadedness even though um not not all of these people or uh, met say diagnostic criteria for POTS I, I think the average heart rate increase for hypermobile anxious people on standing was about 16 or 17 beats per minute okay um which was greater than the non-anxious non-hypermobile which was about eight beats per minute oh, wow. so That's so cool. we're in a, a scenario where by hypermobile people um have this abnormally reactive autonomic nervous yes. system 
we also um, we also know that they experience more symptoms of lightheadedness or palpitations, etc., etc. But we so we know that they're experiencing lots of symptoms. They've got good reason uh, to be experiencing symptoms. Um, but uh, we discovered, you know, I was talking about this sort of glitch between what you think is happening and what's yeah. actually happening. Yeah. Um, we There's a, this idea of something called interception, which you mm. may be familiar with, but maybe listeners are not so no. uh, familiar yeah. with, which is there is a whole other sense that isn't to do with hearing or taste or touch or, or sight or sound is actually the sense of what is happening in your body. Um, and my colleague, uh, Professor Sarah Garfinkel, and my um, my former PhD supervisor, Professor Hugo Critchley, have done a lot of work in this area. And there are different um, aspects to this sense. So you have the physical sensation of having lots of sensations. Then you have how good you are at accurately detecting those sensations you kind of getting the signal out of the noise mm. and then you have how well your confidence in this actually corresponds with your accuracy yes so uh so the, the, there's three levels and uh what um professor garfinkel and uh, professor critchley found was that if uh you're sort of loaded to one area more than the other if there is a mismatch in in these different dimensions of interoception, then um, this could lead to symptoms. So we um, basically uh, looking at the difference between what was happening to people's heart rates, the hypermobile anxious people, and the symptoms, mm. we established this kind of glitch score. And that correlated with anxiety levels and also explained the relationship in the brain um, between brain activity uh, in an important area of the brain called insula, which is also, it re represents yourself in, in internal space, not like proprioception, but interoception. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and it also is involved in important emotion, fear, disgust responses. Yes. So um, we call this autonomic prediction error. Um, and so the idea of the new therapy is to reduce this, uh, to to basically align what you think is happening in your body and what is actually happening in your body to 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 make the signal clearer and the noise less noisy. And so the therapy tries to do this in two ways, a kind of tackle it in both directions. So yes. one way is um, about making you um, more more accurate in detecting what's happening to your heart rate okay. uh, so, so for example if you run um and people do don't they um uh, they they find you, your heart's beating fast but you don't um think to yourself oh i'm having a panic attack or a heart attack mm, and this is sure. going to be because you know the context yes um so um what we're trying to do is make you more accurate but also to know the context to sort of decatastrophize those sensations yes. so um that you ah oh, it's maybe because i stood up or 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 something like that um so you're simultaneously trying to increase the signal and reduce the noise yes. and that that's the that's the aim of the therapy and it's called adapt and uh, that stands for altering dynamics of autonomic processing therapy Wow.
So, the, but it's a non-drug, it's a non-drug yes. treatment. But it's obviously it's a research treatment. It's yes. undergoing a clinical mm -hmm. trial at the moment. Um, we'll have to see if it works. Um, but yes, it's a combination of interceptive training, so a biofeedback process, mm -hmm. and also some principles from behavioral therapy of reframing um, uh, unpleasant internal yes. sensations. Wow, that's going to be so valuable. When do you, when will the clinical trials be finished? Well, it's an in, it's a really interesting question. So it's been quite the journey because of COVID. Um, oh, yeah. uh, no, but we have actually. My team have worked so hard. Um, the problem is, is the 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 feedback training uh, used to happen in our lab at the university, which has obviously been closed uh, mm. during uh, lockdowns. It's quite complicated technical equipment. Yes. But luckily, um, together, um, we were able to work with a software company to turn this complicated technical equipment on our own computers into an app that could be put on a tablet. And oh. we were able to buy um, pulse oximeters, uh, which we would have used at the university on computers, that plug in uh, to certain tablets uh, to make this uh, potential therapy possible Mm. at home yes. during COVID. So we've been sending tablets and pulse oximeters out and the um, the research therapists have been guiding people in um, in how to um, how to do the, the the training and obviously yes. because they're research therapists they're also doing the um, the the other aspects about yes. you know thinking through the the, the behavioral um, aspects so we have actually I think in some ways COVID has been excellent in that we've gone a step further um because um we've actually taken it out of the lab and into people's homes which is yeah which is great yeah. but um there are some financial implications uh because of, of COVID uh yes. which means that we well, it's it's uncertain but we may not be able to to because of the, the the financial constraints see as many people as we had hoped we would be able to see which right. um makes it harder to know whether we're going to be able to know categorically whether this actually works right okay well it's still excellent sort of movement isn't it in the in the right area to yes find out yeah it's brilliant okay so yeah we've been talking about the orthostatic intolerance um the relationships between hypermobility, anxiety, and orthostatic intolerance. But we, you talked, you explained that beautifully about the, you know, the, if you've got the blood pooling and you stand up and your heart rate goes up, then that's going to cause the anxiety, isn't it? And or, or something that that feels like that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but I, I think, um, and also this may be interpreted by the brain in different ways, um, mm. but. You've, you're basically constitutionally vulnerable uh, to, yes. to, to flight or fright, basically. Yes. Gosh. Yeah, my head's like, I've got so many things going around in my head. I'm trying to take it all in. I've got so many questions. But um, yeah, okay. Interesting. Right. Sorry, I'm just turning the page because I said I've got so many questions for you. Okay, so we're moving on now from anxiety more to talk about um, trauma. Um, so is there a, cause, a causal link of psychological or physical trauma 
triggering EDS or making EDS symptoms worse. Have you come across anything like this? Well, um, it's interesting that you um, you think about this. I mean, trauma is obviously a very complicated subject and does yes. encompass both uh, physical and um, non-physical yes. trauma. Um, certainly, physical trauma uh, has been known uh, to make um, a, a hypermobile person's symptoms worse and may thus push them into an EDS diagnosis of which pain um is a part yeah. uh that's definitely true there is really very little research to my knowledge um about the psychological aspects of trauma making eds worse mm. uh, or, or 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 leading someone into eds or or not but um i so i i did actually um i i have looked into this from a research perspective not personally but as in i've looked at the literature yes. Yes. And um, for EDS, as it is described, um, there really there isn't much out there. But we know there are related conditions. So uh, we know, for example, I published uh, with um, colleagues um, some findings from a pain and fatigue study uh, in January. We know there's a huge overlap between hypermobility and fibromyalgia. Um, and, um, I mean, I think we found that, um, over 80% of the people with fibromyalgia that we were studying, we were studying people with fibromyalgia and people with MECFS, mm -hmm. um, uh, that over 80% of them met diagnostic criteria for what you might call joint hypermobility syndrome, uh, yeah. which is very high. Uh, yeah. so we know that there is a literature that suggests that, early experiences or adverse experiences are linked to symptoms in uh, fibromyalgia. So we could putatively say, well, if it's happening in fibromyalgia and so many people with fibromyalgia have uh, a hypermobile, mm. that maybe, maybe something is going on. Mm. Um, and the same thing less well established but um uh if there is a relationship between hypermobility and neurodiversity uh we we think that neurodiverse people maybe have different risk factors for for psychological trauma and also may process psychological trauma differently mm. to other people yes. yeah. so yeah i cannot categorically say anything about um eds because there, there i don't think there are um existing studies but um as a brain body person and thinking about related conditions in which hypermobility appears to be a feature mm. um uh i would say that probably um as with anything, uh, physical and psychological trauma could definitely have uh, an impact. Yes. And because, of course, there are people who haven't had traumas. Yes. At all, who have yes. hypermobility, but they have pain. Yes. And, and, that, that, and it depends as, as well how we conceptualise trauma. And mm -hmm. uh, there is um, a, a growing um, a school of thought that suggests that trauma doesn't necessarily have to be a single life-threatening moment but it is more a, a build-up of of several traumatizing events and um you can understand from that position that being yes. in a chronic pain situation um is is traumatizing in and of yes. itself yeah. 
and and of course we we know that people's symptoms um can flare after physical trauma or infections or or, or things like that or i mean just even something like spraining your ankle i mean can set off a, a huge yes. um uh because of the change in alignments and stresses and what have you in, in terms of how you move um that can that can generate you know different pain patterns that you wouldn't have normally experienced yes yeah it's fascinating isn't it because how can somebody who's you know okay they've had hypermobility but they're relatively fit you know not really symptomatic but then something happens maybe an injury or a car accident or something and they can spiral downhill quite rapidly into almost being bed bound or, or, or you know wheelchair um, users so I don't know how that spiral can really happen. I, I think there are a couple of things really um, and I might be speaking slightly out of my depth here but uh, we know that um, that you know the connective tissue is obviously very important for healing um, mm. and we know that um, hypermobile people have different wound healing yeah. Um, so you can imagine that recovering from a physical trauma, uh, yes. potentially may be different. And also we, we, we not really, I mean, it's, it's, it's something that's fascinating really, but how say the inflammatory system connects with the connective tissue matrix. I mean, are there things going in both ways there in, mm. in terms of feeding into each other and how that also then relates to the autonomic nervous system? Um, and how that relates to stress hormones all, all of these things are not clearly divined but we a bit like with the gut brain um mm. bi-directional yes. uh, the gut brain access I, I i'm sure that um we will we will understand a little bit more um about uh, these things mm. further down the line but there's likely yes. to be a, a link between the connective tissue milieu the inflammatory milieu and yes. um and then that how that affects um symptoms yes yeah i mean from a movement perspective obviously i'm always looking about how do you help someone get out of a bed-bound situation through exactly movement. and um but yeah it's um there's so much going on isn't there that help that makes yeah. that happen um mm. yeah and I think also maybe if you're used to being very active, it can be um, oh, yeah. it can be very difficult to not yes. be active. And people yeah. have a lot of fears and worries uh, about what pain mm -hmm. means. Um, and yeah. talking about you know that was that was the the big thing that I learned on my um, pain rehabilitation program was that activity is not always harmful. Yes, it, um, and that um, yeah. gentle, gradual very you know building it up in a safe way is um is very very important mm. oh yeah absolutely and you know like you were talking learning to listen to your body um which i guess is tricky as well i know a lot of my clients they never know when they've done too much yes so it's that again that lack of mismatch i guess that, um, it, it is it is a mismatch and also yeah. i mean I, I again i don't know a huge amount of but about it but somehow the body tells us to stop sometimes when we can't tell ourselves to stop yes yes um yeah. i can't give a research uh, reference for that <laughs> but i i yeah, think yeah. uh i think there are ideas aren't there about the body holds the score and but the yes. body does um sometimes uh, the body says enough is enough yes. and maybe it's saying enough is enough to other things as well yes absolutely yeah 
yeah, and it will just put a stop to everything. Absolutely. Um, so just staying with the trauma idea, um, is trauma impeded more in hypermobility than in a non-hypermobile person, which we just touched upon? And then would there be physical brain changes associated with the trauma that could explain the trigger for pain? Hmm. Interesting. Um, I don't think there's a neat answer, but as I said, the brain is a very plastic thing. So yes. I think there can be, um, there will be thinking differences, behavioral differences, there will be brain changes, differences to physical and uh, psychological trauma. Whether yeah. these are different in hypermobile people or non-hypermobile people, I, I really do not know. I do not know. Um, but it is, um, it is an emerging um it is it's definitely an interesting area of research yeah um and i mean it isn't and it, as i said and we're also reconceptualizing what we think about terms like ptsd so um it's it, it, it it's hard to know but i i i think um engaging in a kind of multiple biopsychosocial approach to all of these problems yes. is probably the the way forward yeah. and I, I don't think there's going to be a magic bullet uh, for any of these things yes. um, but thinking holistically about the brain and the body together is really important yeah. absolutely yeah definitely okay um so um a lot of my clients um and, and people in the community i know use something called um dynamic neural retraining systems mm. dnrs and um, um there's books and there's online programs or you can have a coach so there's lots of different ways of doing it but um do programs like this that mitigate the hypersensitivity reactions by rewiring the brain work for eds so i know that this course i've not done it myself but from what I understand, it works on the limbic system um, and calming down sort of responses and things, I, I believe. Would this as, work? As far as I'm aware, there is, there is no research directly linking um, uh, uh, dynamic neural retraining to effects in hypermobility. Mm. Um, but we know that um, a variety of different techniques, um, non-drug and drug techniques, um, do cause changes in the brain and uh, behavior and thinking. And I, I, I think um, chronic, I think this, it probably places hypermobility in and amongst other chronic illnesses like chronic fatigue syndrome mm. and fibromyalgia yeah. Um, yeah. and other chronic pain conditions. And um, uh, I think a variety of approaches, a bit like we were just saying, um, are, are often um, often important. But as far as I'm aware, there is no uh, robust uh, research evidence for no. this. Um, no. But it is it is perfectly possible to mm. um, uh, change the brain uh, uh, with um, non-drug treatments. Yes, I guess it's all about calming down that fight or flight aspect of it, yes isn't it? yes it's have a, a similar I, I'm like with like with eds you know everyone is so different some things are going to work for some people but not for um, others. we're not for others yeah no abs uh, absolutely and i suppose i'm just always wary that some people might end up thinking feeling compelled to spend lots and lots of money on things that um aren't necessarily proven so yes. um yeah, yeah, i, I think it to 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 not put pin all of your hopes uh on, on any one, one 
one any one yeah yeah no absolutely yeah um now this and i know this is one of your areas but this fascinates me the 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 fact that people can develop these sensitivities to light sound smell um, even like Wi-Fi, I have some clients who were affected by Wi-Fi um, signals, um, but they've never had it before. So these things just suddenly emerge, these sensitivities. Why does that happen? And mm. can it be reversed? Or how, how could we reverse them? It's not something, I mean, that I know actually a huge amount about, uh, scientifically speaking. Um, it is uh, something that I think people are going to be more and more interested in, in terms of uh, post-viral syndromes and uh, long COVID um, mm. or yeah. COVID. Yeah. Um, uh, it is it is interesting Um in terms of i think it's it's to do with sensitivity and and focus and somehow the the um uh the calibration has 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 changed in, in terms of how exquisitely or ha how sensitive you are to mm. some things but my my clinical work is actually um currently in autism and adhd and people with autism and ADHD, uh, autistic people and people with adhd um, have a variety of sensory uh, processing differences and the interesting thing about sensory processing differences is sometimes they are hypersensitivities and sometimes they are hyposensitivities so for example mm. not feeling the need to have a pee or um, not hearing distracting noises, but being yes. very sensitive to smells. And yes. what we know in uh, autistic people and people with ADHD is that they have differences in their sensory processing. They're either more or less uh, attuned to senses than um, other people, but it can change according to context and, their, uh, and what's happening for them in the moment. So um, I I would have thought that um, uh, it suggests an underlying difference in sensory processing, full stop, okay. but that that is quite changeable. But mm. in terms of what to do about it and how it can be changed, um, uh, I think finding um, sensory activities that are... Um, pleasing rather than aversive um mm -hmm. it's um, important it's mm -hmm. called going into the realms of occupational therapy in which i'm not an expert um right. but um but like a soothing kit so there may be some and everyone is different in terms of their sensory preferences yes. but some people find particular smells really pleasing or particular fabrics um and so having a go and you know there, there is currently obviously isn't there a lot of interest um you can't escape in terms of things like weighted blankets um oh, yes. uh um uh, or, or wearing headphones to try and reduce noise so i i suppose um um having a having a toolkit of of things that you go to that help regulate how you yeah. feel through your senses and we yes. we know from from autism and adhd that um, a lot of that 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 behaviour is is related to self regulation. Yeah. Okay. Fascinating. Um, so I guess yeah, that with the hypermobility, maybe we're just more susceptible to those. Wow. Well, this is well. I think I think we maybe just um, 
slightly more finely tuned in general. Finely tuned, yeah. And um, we we in in the group of people that we've been studying. Um, we're studying. I sound like some uh, terrible uh, <laughs> what have you? But we, the the hypermobile and anxious people who have um, uh, been wanting who who are taking part in our study. Uh, we we presented at a conference recently some interesting findings. These are all people who predominantly have anxiety. They don't have other diagnosed um, uh, mental health or neurological issues. But we we found that the more connective tissue features uh, that were present in the individual, the higher the sensory processing um, scores, so sensory processing differences on an autism rating scale mm -hmm. uh, these are just features of of sensory processing differences so you can imagine um and this is we need to replicate this in a larger sample and get it peer-reviewed and all of this sort of thing but you you can imagine that there's something about the makeup of the body and the brain that will change how you yes. experience sensation and perhaps yes. that is related to hypermobility yes mm. fascinating um, so you touched on the neurodiversity. Um, yes. So what sort of research have you been doing into um, hypermobility and neurodiversity? Okay, so um, it was one of the reasons why my supervisor first got interested in hypermobility as a concept uh, was, I mean, and, and the, the terminologies are changing all the time, just as they are in hypermobility. So yes. we previously used to think of, um uh some autistic people as having asperger syndrome mm -hmm. and uh my my supervisor was um doing a study on a brain imaging study on um asperger syndrome and uh noticed that he thought that the male participants had a particular sort of look uh, to them uh that he thought was related to hypermobility um, and uh, so he he was uh, interested in this relationship. At that point, there were only really um, a few um, case reports of children, autistic children, um, having loose joints, um, uh, Marfanoid uh, people uh, with Marfans um, mm -hmm. being more likely to have autism. Some mm -hmm. relationships between hypermobility and um, ADHD in children, um, the hypermobility and dyspraxia link. Um, so we started a study in our um, clinic uh, where we see neurodiverse, divergent people. Yes. Um, and whilst we were doing that work, um, uh, the some uh, researchers in Sweden published this really fascinating uh, study. So Sweden is a country that has excellent health registries, which is a great way to, in some ways to do research. Uh, so you can link um, one condition with another. Um, uh, you can look a long time. It's all, it's, it's all great uh, in terms of, of, of getting answers to associations. Mm. And so what they found in Sweden was that if you had EDS or JHS, so hypermobile, symptomatic hypermobility, yeah. you're seven times more likely to be autistic or uh, five, six times more likely to have ADHD. And what was quite striking about that is for these people to be in the health registry, 
they will have to have been diagnosed with both. So we know that there are a huge number of people, autistic people, people yes. with ADHD who are under the radar. Yes. We, we know that there are a huge number of people uh, with hypermobility who are not diagnosed uh, with joint hypermobility syndrome or EDS. So if this, this is just the tip of the iceberg, I believe. So mm. that, that work shows, um, shows the, the a, a strong whole population wide relationship between um, hypermobility and um, uh, neurodivergence. Wow. Uh, we finished our study um, looking at neurodivergent people um, to see if they were hypermobile. And this is this hasn't been peer reviewed, but it is published on Med Archive. So if mm -hmm. you Google Eccles Med Archive Autism, it will come okay. up. So yeah. we looked at a group of, I think, 105 um, uh, neurodivergent uh, individuals, a variety of autism, ADHD, Tourette syndrome, some combinations of two, three, roles. And yes. we found that they had um, more likely to have generalized hypermobility than controls, more likely to have generalized joint hypermobility compared to the population, greater autonomic symptoms than controls, and greater pain symptoms than uh, controls. Wow. And I uh, work in a adult um, ADHD autism Tourette syndrome clinic. And maybe it's something about the patients that I end up seeing, but I don't think so because my colleagues report the same experiences. But um, yeah, th this clinic, uh, probably at least um, well, around 80% of the women certainly are hypermobile. And a lot of them have uh, POTS, chronic pain, chronic fatigue, gastrointestinal disturbance yeah. i mean there's a there's a long history of of autism wow. and gastrointestinal disturbance so in my clinical experience and in my research experience they are very closely linked but that is not to say all hypermobile people are neurodivergent or sure. all neurodivergent people are hypermobile sure. but they 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 seem to hang around together wow and so this is to maybe to do with this the fine what did you call it? The fine balance or something in the brain? We're more finely tuned. I don't know. Hi, hi, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe, yeah. yeah the calibration, the finely calibrated. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. Wow. But we, but I mean, I, I, I gave you. You asked me, you know, why, why, why hypermobility might lead to anxiety. I mean, trying to explain why hypermobility might lead to neurodivergence is much more complicated. Oh, but they, they definitely do seem to to go together yes wow well amazing thank you for that research because i know people have been talking about it for a long time that is there a relationship and then you know you're you're doing that research and working on that and it's just fascinating oh wow um so um very quickly um i read some research when i was doing my research on um for, for this podcast um eds and eating disorders um, and I think I found one paper. Um, yes. What's the relationship there with eating disorders? Uh, so, yeah. So, um, yes, I think there are a couple of papers now uh, that explicitly link, well, uh, hypermobility is overrepresented in um, people with eating disorders. Mm. Um if you've seen my YouTube video on neurodiversity and hypermobility, yes. I, I present some data which has not yet been published um, 
where we um, we link um, we look at a, a group of, of people um, predominantly with anorexia um, find um, that um, they have uh, uh, some autistic thinking styles that seems to be related to um, uh, which is different in the hypermobile versus the non-hypermobile eating disorder people. Mm. So um, very high rates of hypermobility we find in eating disorder. And this seems to be related to a type of thinking called systematizing, which is kind of about how you look for patterns in the world and kind of, and I can imagine, and this is, this is conjecture. So we need to publish that and mm. uh, get that out there. But th that link seems to be there, it's a small group, but it seems right. to be there. Um, I can hypothesize that if you are hypermobile, you're predisposed um, to potentially have gastrointestinal symptoms, yeah, pain, diarrhea, constipation, etc., cetera, yeah. etc. Cetera. Um, you may also be predisposed, and this is only something that is emerging, uh, to be autistic or have autistic um, traits. Um, yeah. You, which may include um, preference for routine, sameness. Um, sometimes concrete or literal thinking um, and also um, sensory processing differences. So uh, you can imagine that um, the combination of this, um, of all of these different features on a background mm. of more likely to experience gastrointestinal symptoms mm -hmm. would mean that maybe... Um, disordered eating or difficulties with eating, which may be driven by uh, texture preferences or sensation yeah. preferences, yes. uh, could lead into a frank eating disorder. Yeah. Um, but whether, whether that frank eating disorder is driven by a fear of fatness or as in anorexia, or whether it's more complicated, uh, such as avoidant restrictive food intake disorder is, is probably um something to be mm. thought about mm. but i think um and actually there is some really good resources online uh about autism and eating disorders called the peace project out of okay. uh south london and maudsley nhs oh, okay. uh foundation trust yeah so the peace pathway that's what it's called the peace pathway so i think um it's it's it's, a, it's another missing link um in terms of hypermobility uh, of how hypermobility may link these these two um conditions mm. wow gosh just listening to you i'm thinking there's still so much we to find out isn't there oh yes i mean there's oh. there there's there's I've, I've got you know ideas as long as my arm of interesting yeah. things to to try and get money for yeah. um gosh um such a fascinating condition though isn't it i mean you think, mm. oh it's just hypermobility people go it's just you're just hypermobile but wow when you start looking at it there's so much yes going into it. it's just fascinating well yeah um, and also and also how it connects so many issues um which yeah. is kind of interesting given connective tissue um, yes yeah yeah but there's a, i think there are a lot of connections but i think we're we're really you know we're only i think I, I do generally think that probably in 10 or 15 years time, the way we think about this will be quite 
quite yeah. different to how it was 15 years ago. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, just moving on, um, functional neurological disorder or FND. Um, do you know if there's any research that has a link between this condition and EDS? So functional neurological disorder is an umbrella term for um, a fair few uh, conditions, some of which are, are, are quite different uh, from mm. each other. Right. Um, uh, so this may include um, um, paralysis or um, may include uh, seizures. Um, uh, the, as far as I'm aware, uh, there is no explicit um, research linking EDS or hypermobility to functional neurological disorder. Um, I think uh, such disorders um, are complex um, brain-body interactions. And where you have complex brain-body interactions, we often find hypermobility is, um, is somewhere um, <laughs> around. Yeah. But there, there is, there, to my knowledge, there is no explicit, um, explicit research, um, and I think, I think it's it's almost it's it, it's a very broad term with lots of different processes going on uh, and possibly different mechanisms. So I, I think it might be a little bit kind of um, reductive, I suppose, um, um, to think that it's linked to to everything uh, yeah. that's slightly unexplained. Uh, but it's definitely something that would benefit from sensitively conducted, um, appropriate research. Mm. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you for, um, for answering that one. That was a, a popular question from, uh, from our community. Um, so thank you so much for giving us all your time today. Um, if people would like to learn more about you, how can they get in touch? Or I know you have a Twitter account. Um, yes. So, so um, I think uh, if you want to get in touch, the best thing is, 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 is to, if you want to get updates uh, about what's happening, the, um, a good idea is to try and follow me on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And I am uh, somewhat funnily named at Bendy Brain. Um, yeah, so brain. you can follow me at, at Bendy Brain. Um, if you just type my name, which is Jessica Eccles, into and hypermobility, because I'm sure there are other Jessica Eccleses out there, <laughs> but Jessica Eccles and hypermobility into into your search engine, uh, my um, university webpage will pop up, which has quite a few has my contact details and also um, uh, quite a few uh, links to uh, some articles. Uh, a, a pretty good resource um, is actually if you if you just search Jessica Records on YouTube, um, I have um, a variety of different talks um, and they're from different stages of different projects. Um, okay. uh, but uh, they're, and they vary. So I have an anxiety YouTube video that's only three minutes long. Um, and then I have other videos that are 40 minutes long. Um, but that there are, there are quite, quite a few um, uh, uh, videos about hypermobility, anxiety, yeah. neurodiversity, fibromyalgia, ME-CFS. Um, uh, uh, so I would, uh, your, your browser will take you where you need to go. Yeah, 
No, the YouTube is great, actually. I, I was I loved watching all your different um, talks um, on YouTube. Oh, honestly, this has just been so fascinating. And um, my head is just exploding now. I've got, I've got more questions than, than when I started, but that's great. It's really great. So thank you so much. And I know um, our viewers um, are going to love listening to, to, to your answers today. Um, so thank you again, um, Dr. Eccles. And um, thank you to everyone who's been listening and watching. Um, so until next time, keep moving. <laughs>